Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you meet us here this morning, God, that we would hear your word, that we would believe it in faith, God. That we would leave today changed because of you and what you've done through Christ Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, I hope you're ready to jump into it because this is not only my favorite book of the Bible, but we now land in my favorite chapter of my favorite book of the Bible uh, in my favorite verses of the Bible. Um, I absolutely love Ephesians 2, specifically verses 1 through 10, where we're at today. Uh, for those of you who are with us at Redemption's Hill since our early days, who, who was ever at a service at the Ark? Just, this is the only times I'll ask you to do There's more of you than I thought. That's cool. Uh, So any of you who are ever at a service at the Ark, you can probably vouch and attest that this is my favorite uh, text because I probably snuck it into probably 25% of our sermons, and I cried on 25% of the 25% that I snuck into uh, those at the Ark. Like, if you weren't with us, you can ask someone. Thank God you guys stayed around. Um, Yeah, but I love this. My affinity for this section of Scripture, uh, it's not because it holds some unique parable. Uh, it doesn't hold uh, some side uh, weird thing that I love. Uh, it, it's not in the uplifting Bible verse or life verse category by any means. Uh, but in this section of Scripture, uh, we find an extremely potent and clear uh, description of the entire gospel and why it's so beautiful. That's why I love this text. Ten verses show the redemptive plan of God in just strikingly clear language. If you're ever like, what's the gospel? This is just a really good place to go. Uh, So for me, that makes these verses great. They are not extra biblical. 
They're not better than other verses. They're just awesome, and they're a great place to be. Uh, so I hope that you walk away uh, with a love and appreciation for these as well. And as we drill down, in, down deep into them, I, just, I hope that your heart finds joy in the love of God through this text. That's the hope. Uh, as we jump into part of this, I, I've been trying to kind of keep our bearings at where we're at in, in this series together. Uh, so Ephesians, uh, the, the book, has six chapters. It's not very long, just six. And then there's going to be two general themes found in this book, and there's really uh, some interesting symmetry in this. Like the first half is the first theme, and the second half is the second theme. In the first three chapters, uh, what we're going to find is declarations of what the gospel is and its implications on our lives. So these texts are declarative. They're not prescriptive. It's not telling you uh, this is what you must do, or this is how I hope you act, or this is what I'd really love out of you. Uh, these verses are saying this is what is true about the gospel, and this is what it means for you, period. Like, that's it. Not and do this or else. It's just this is what it is, period. Then the second half of the book, verses 4 through 6, uh, will begin to describe, okay, now that that gospel is true, then prescriptively, what do we do with it? How do we live with it? What do we, what do we kind of live in light of because of that? So we're still in the, in the declarative portion, meaning it's not asking a bunch of you. It's just telling you what is true about the gospel. It's going to lay out the audacity of salvation in uh, the gospel. He's not asking you for, to behave in a certain way. He's simply saying this is what the gospel does to a person, and we get the chance to believe it or not. Uh, obviously, I'm pulling for the belief option. I'll, I'll just tell you that ahead of time. Uh, that's my hope. Now, to process this text with its intended purposes, uh, to, to kind of get the feel that you're supposed to out of, there's a necessary step that we have to take in order to kind of start from the same spot. Paul's starting from a very specific spot uh, mentally, and we've got to kind of get there, or this text will not land on you in the way that it's meant to. So in order to get that kind of starting place and process that together, we're going to do what, you know, I always love to do. Uh, we're just going to ask a question. Uh, and whether you realize it or not, this is one of the biggest questions that you can ask because this question and the way you answer it, it will trickle down into uh, the theological house that you live in. Like what you believe about God, what you believe about the Bible, highly will be formed by how you answer this, right? So it means that this question actually is highly theological in nature. It forms the foundation of what you believe about men and women, and what you believe about men and women thereby will form uh, really what you believe about their relationship to God and how much do they actually need God, right? So if you're following me, good. If not, we'll get you there. Uh, but here is uh, the question, very simple uh, in nature, even though the theological implications are quite vast. Uh, the question is this, just how bad is it? How bad is the human state because of sin? How deep is the desperation of our situation because of sin's grasp upon us, right? How bad is it? How big of the mess are we in? How bad is it? Is the situation uh, a little bad? Is it, you know, kind of bad? Is it pretty bad? Or is it horrifically bad? Uh, does sin mess up every uh, one of us? Or is, you know, kind of sin just something that just means that we mess up every once in a while, but we're, you know, we're pretty much mostly good. 
Right? Are we mostly good or has sin utterly grasped every part of us? And we don't just mess up at times, but we are actively lost in our sin. Well, you have to decide where you land on that in order to make uh, really sense of what Paul is trying to say. How bad of a deal? Do, do, do we need God kind of bad or absolutely terribly bad because our situation is horrible without him? What's difficult about this question uh, is that it puts the Bible and the flow of culture at odds with each other. Uh, the world preaches a storyline that says uh, essentially in all of us uh, is a basically good person. right? Inside of you is a basically good person that we have good hearts and we're not really that far off. Yeah, you know, we got, everybody's got their issues, but we're not that far off. And then culture even asserts that if we make a bad choice here or there, that that bad choice, follow me, it is not indicative of who you are or what's the language? It's not indicative of what's actually in my heart. You see this all the time in the, in the media, right? When a person goes on the apology tour, right? We've seen that. All of a sudden, they got caught. I'm like, oh, great. we got to go do the thing. So they get caught, and then when they get caught doing something that paints them in a bad light or a bad way, they immediately do. They all follow the same cues, right? You, any of you could be their PR specialist because it's really easy to tell them what to do. They immediately say uh, that, that what they caught, got caught doing, it wasn't really them, right? Isn't that what they say? And, and it was actually an anomaly, and, and even more so, that action wasn't really a representation of them. Which raises the question for me, I'm a cynic and, and sometimes mean, uh, then who exactly was it? Okay, it wasn't you, great. Who was it? Did, did your body get hijacked? Was it a stunt double? Are you into the conspiracy theories? Was it, was it a, a deep fake by Russia? Who did it? Right? This is kind of what happens here. This whole idea pops up where culture will now set up these really awkward and weird rules and demand that you live by them. And what they do is they try and twist reality in ways to keep intact a person's ability to say or believe even when we do awful stuff that we aren't really bad. Right? That's what we're doing. They want to be able to hold on to it. Uh, we could not be bad people. It was an anomaly. It wasn't really me. It's not what's in my heart. This whole system strains to do whatever it can to not admit that we may be people who do some really horrible things, all of us. Even further, it goes a really long way to say we're not sinners. But here's the problem with that. When you go incredible lengths to pretend you're okay and mostly good, it's going to be a problem because that stands in opposition of the gospel because the gospel says, well, you're not just slightly bad or a little terrible. You and I are massively infected by sin. We are all sinners. We don't accidentally sin every once in a while. We're sinners. What do sinners do? They sin. It's, it's bad. You might ask, well, what does that matter? Right? Are you just a glass half empty type of guy? Maybe, but... How bad things are is actually extremely important. Right? When you ask, okay, why does that matter? That's a great question, but it affects how amazing God is for us. It matters because if we don't see how bad things are for us without Christ, follow me, you'll never know how much he actually did for you and how amazing what God did through Christ actually is. So think of it this way. I, I put this analogy uh, it, Things sometimes work out in my head and not in real life, so we'll, we'll just see. Uh, imagine you're standing at, the, uh, at a hospital. 
I don't know why, but just go with me. You're doing it, okay? You're standing at the hospital outside the doors, and you, walk two, you watch two young men walk out the doors, and they've both been released, right? Standing outside, two guys roll out. They look about the same age. They've both been released, right? So they were both in the hospital, meaning they had some sort of medical need, and now that they are being discharged, that medical need has been met. Then later you hear the first guy or one of the guys out the door. He walked out. He just needed like an ACL repair, right? He blew out his knee. He needed it fixed. The other guy, though, he'd been in there for over 11 months with stage four cancer, He had been given no chance to survive, no chance at all. There's nothing else we can do for you. But now somehow he's being discharged just like the other guy, cancer-free. He gets to go home, something he was told that would never happen to him. Now, if you saw these two guys walk out the doors at the same time, which guy would you be happier for? Well, the answer is, like, well, I'd be happier for both. They're both alive. Come on. You'd be happier for the guy with stage four cancer. Why? Because he wasn't supposed to go home, right? The guy who had knee surgery, he got to go home. That isn't a big deal, though. He limped because he played football at one point. He just needed it repaired. He was never considered terminal. It was never that bad of a deal. He could have lived without the surgery. He just wanted to have it. He walked out, but he was supposed to walk out. Now, the other guy, though, not the same deal. He shouldn't be alive. The doctor said, there's nothing I can do for you. Your situation, it isn't just kind of bad, like you're dead. Like, I I cannot help you, and yet somehow a miracle happened, and when he was supposed to be dead, he is healed, and he walks out. This is an enormous, seemingly insurmountable sickness or need that the guy has, and we'd be moved by joy that this need that should not be fixed and said that it could not be fixed is fixed and they're walking out, right? The bigger need gets the bigger joy, right? Because it's unexpected. It's a bigger deal. Now, I float that analogy out there, obviously saying that all analogies break down at some point, but, but here's what I'd want you to understand. We will never truly grasp the beauty of who we are in Christ until we have seen fully who we were before Christ. You will never, ever get it. Now, we have to behold it with unfiltered eyes, no matter how painful it is, and can I just tell you, it's really painful to look at. It hurts, and it's uncomfortable, and it's hard. And as many times as we look at where we come from before Christ, we want to turn away because we hate it. We don't want to be reminded of what happened at that point. But until you fully wrap your mind around where you came from, you'll never know how amazing Jesus is and how beautiful he is. See, Paul walks us right into that reality at the beginning of Ephesians 2. How bad's the human condition? He says, put on a seatbelt. Let me tell you, it's real bad. That's how the text opens. Paul says in the verses that Ali read, specifically one through three, he does not warm us up. He doesn't prepare us. He just jumps into it. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is to say all humans, everyone born, which is everyone, all people find themselves in this position. Now, he wasn't saying, hey, someday because of your sin, you're going to die. That's already a given and a part of the fall. That's not what he's referencing here. He's actually referencing something else. Paul is saying, spiritually, we are dead from the start because of sin. As in spiritually, we aren't just sick. We're not just unresponsive, we're lifeless and we are dead. Now, here, here's where we have to kind of adjust and fix some things. So there, there's some, some Christians who can believe since you're spiritually dead before Christ, you're just awful and you can't ever do anything. 
no, that, theologically, that's not actually true at all. Uh, spiritually dead people can still do amazing things. Why? Because they're made in the image of God, and that hasn't been deleted. Right? So because of that, and because we're all still made in the image of God, someone who is spiritually dead can still make beautiful art, amazing music. They can play sports. They can make money. They can have marriages that aren't dumpster fires. They can parent their kids and actually love them well. And hear this, they can actually do really loving humanitarian acts. But they can do nothing spiritually. Why? Because they're dead. Spiritually, they are what Jesus said, not connected to the vine. Right? I am the vine, you're the branches. Dead spiritually means you're not connected to the vine. So life spiritually is an area that you just don't have. We are dead spiritually completely and utterly because we are cut off from God in the beginning. Then Paul gives us uh, evidence for this diagnosis, right, which is valid because we might think, well, okay, like, I get it. Sin's nasty and it's bad, but come on, overacting, like dead, dead, dead? He goes, okay, well, follow me. Let's look at this. He says spiritual death shows itself in the things that we follow and are led by. Paul's just like, okay, if you don't believe it, let's just look at our resume without Jesus. If we were spiritually alive, we'd follow God. To some degree, we would be following him. But he says we follow the ways of the world, the prince of the power of air, which is biblical language for Satan, and we follow and are led by the desires of our flesh. Paul says those are the things that we are alive to because, again, connect to me, that's what we feed off and we're connected to, and this is where we draw meaning from life out of. We do not find meaning and strength out of God. We do not follow God. We're disconnected there, but we follow and are fed by and are led by these things. When Paul says we follow the world naturally before salvation, he's saying we follow the, the bent, the habits, the values found in the world. Right? We live in the world's lifestyle and not in Christ. As if there is this, this flowing current of water of the world. This is the way that the world is moving. And we're not just in the current. We're taken up by it. And we're just rolling with the current away from God and away from the way that we're supposed to live in Jesus. So we are not moving towards God because of sin. We're moving away and we needed a rescue. We need someone to pull us out of the current of the world, which we're just kind of going with. When he says we follow the prince of the power of the air, he's saying plainly, and we'll dig a little bit into this more at the very end of this, this book, uh, but it's going to talk about the world is under the reign and rule of Satan for a time. There's some dirty, nasty stuff going on. Just watch the news, some horrible things that are going. So the enemy of God is running around, com- appears to have a reign over quite a few things on earth. So Paul's saying, hey, you're not all born demon-possessed. But in the world, Satan is running his power. He's doing things. He has a sway, and you get swayed by what he is doing. By birth, we get caught up in it. So those are two things leading us. And the last one is probably the most evident and the easiest to see. It's not as hard to describe. From birth, we follow the passions of the desires of our flesh. We do what we want. Right? They rule us. Galatians 5 talks about it this way. It calls the desires of the flesh. And these are bucket terms. There would probably be more than these, but he just kind of tries to give us an understanding. We follow these things and fall into these fleshly things like anger, sexual immorality of any type, idolatry, sorcery. Here's a big one that you may not think of as desires of the flesh. Jealousy, strife, dissension, and drunkenness. 
Right? We follow those. We are led by those. The way I point this out when we want to see, do those really exist in humanity? Uh, I just point this out. Complete honestly, I stole it from someone. But nobody has to teach a child to be jealous or angry. It's just in there. You're like, what? It's in there from the beginning. A child doesn't have to be taught about strife and dissensions. You see this at an early age when they scream and bite the tar out of someone when they don't get what they want. You do not have to teach that. They're wired with it. It's in there. From an early age, we have these desires of our flesh, and they strongly pull on us before we can even reason for what they are. Here's the hard part, though. We don't grow out of them. We just try and mask them, though. Right? We justify them, or we mask them, or, or sometimes we lean heavily into them and go, that's my right. But the flesh isn't something that we get away from. Jeremiah 17.9 says it this way. Uh, when they talk about the heart or the flesh, the Bible will use those uh, kind of in tandem for talking about uh, a life and a heart that is not reconciled to God. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. From birth, we all find that something is off, something is broken. And Paul says, hey, it's because spiritually we're cut off. We are spiritually dead inside. Doesn't mean we don't have the Imago Dei. Doesn't mean that we're not valued human beings. But spiritually, we have nothing there. And our behavior and, our insa- and the insanity behind our behavior is because of the influences behind it. We are led by the world, the enemy, and our flesh. Paul paints a pretty dark picture here. How bad is it? Well, he says we're dead and our sins are running around and chasing everything but God. We are not spiritually seekers on a journey towards the Father. We're not just all trying to figure it out. The hard reality is we are spiritually dead, running away from God from the womb. This picture is what theologians have called the valley of death. Dead spiritually, running after things that we shouldn't. And this forms up what is known as the doctrine of, of total depravity. Uh, which asserts that uh, really all aspects of our person have been infected by sin, which then means that we fall into what is called total inability. It's a fancy way of saying morally we are not capable of responding to God apart from grace. In other words, how bad is it? On our own, we would not and could not respond to God because of how bad sin has jacked us up. That's what Paul's asserting. What's really important uh, to make and a distinction for us to understand is we can often believe this, that religion is, uh, or God is essentially uh, really in our minds and our hearts, the weighing of pros and cons, right? I, I, I weighed the pros, I weighed the cons, hell, eternity with God, like, I kind of cited heaven, and we, we kind of we work things out that way. I weighed the pros and cons, uh, the pros seem better, so I decided for God, but Paul's saying, no, that's not right. Why? Because a dead person can't make spiritual choices. Doesn't mean they're not valuable, they're just dead. A dead person can do nothing to heal their position of death. They need a miracle from the outside to lay a hold of them and bring them to life. Here's where a note may help, and, and I just want to present this down and try and be as like humble and meek as I can. The doctrine of a predestin- and a predestination and election is not a closed-fisted, it's not a closed-fisted issue here. We can have people who don't line up with that and do and still believe and follow Jesus, and we are all good, okay? 
So I, I want to try and not cause fights where they don't need to. But a note on predestination and election here that may be helpful to us. If we could not and would not choose God on our own because we're spiritually dead, because we're cut off from him, and because of sin's path and what it's done for us, then we need something to choose and come after us because we wouldn't choose and come after it. It's just a base level way that I try and talk about it. We needed someone to grab a hold of us because we weren't going to reach out for a lifeline. It's easier to believe that we would, but we needed God to initiate and make the first move. We needed to do his thing to awaken us. This is luckily what Paul talks about after this. Again, if you don't fall into those doctrinal areas, we can still be brothers and sisters. This is where the good part comes, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he may show you the immeasurable riches of his grace. If, if you want a verse just to kind of read and marinate on this week, read seven. He wants to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace, grace upon grace upon grace, and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. So Ephesians uh, chapter 2, it's going to deal the whole thing, we're only doing half of it today, it's going to deal with uniting things. In this front section, 1 through 10, it's dealing with uniting us to God through Christ. Okay? Despite our circumstances, despite our sin, despite our death spiritually, despite the ways of the world and the enemy and our flesh, we hear in verse 2 these sweet words in the Bible, these diamonds for us. It's really, really, really bad, but God. There's a beautiful thing here. Despite the horrible situation, God decided to do something. Verse 5 said, God made us alive with Christ. Hear the change of state, though. God brings believers from death to life. You were dead in your sins, so spiritually you were dead. And then he says in the other verse, but God made you alive in Christ. He transfers your state from dead to alive, from lost to found, from enemy to adopted son and daughter. A transfer of state. Why? What would be his motive? Why doesn't he just let us go? Paul says the motive is God is rich in mercy and oh so loving. It actually says uh, because of the great love which he has, he would not let our death spiritually separate us from him eternally. So even while we're dead in our trespasses, God makes us alive, and his motive to do so is not because we've done well or made ourselves desirable. His motive for doing so is entirely found inside his goodness. If you remember chapter 1, Paul's been kind of driving it this way the whole time. He did it because he wanted to and because he's loving. This is why Paul says, by grace you have been saved. Best way to understand by grace you've been saved you do a bunch of things, that's not grace because you earned it. Grace is unearned merit or favor. There's so much fruit in these verses. Uh, Christian, how can you know that God doesn't get mad and cast you all out when you fall short? You and I, like honest talk, we mess up. We trip up. We have bad days. How do we know that he doesn't hate us when we do that? Well, Paul gives us the answer here. God had Jesus die for us while we were still sinners. While we were dead, while we were depraved, while we were doomed, that's when Christ died. Not when we improved ourselves, not when we proved ourselves, not when we cleaned ourselves up, not when we tried really hard. In the middle of our mess, Christ acted 
to make a way to save us. So even when you aren't as far as you want to be or you slip up accidentally, this isn't a justification to do whatever you want for all of life, but in times when you fall short, you don't have to worry that God will no longer love you or save you. He isn't surprised by your mess because he jumped into your mess before you even realized you had a mess. He's not surprised. If that's true, then we don't have to act like Adam and Eve in the garden, diving behind bushes, hoping that he doesn't hate us and kill us. We have something to cover our shame. In our worst state is when Jesus died. Gives you comfort even when you hit a rough patch here. Then look at this. I I created a slide for it. Um, Look at how he describes the lengths of the amazing grace. We were dead in our sins, right? Uh, There should be another one that says, but God at the very top. There we go. We were dead in our sins, but God did what? He, one, made us alive with Christ. Two, he raised us up with him. This is Christ. Three, he seated us up with him in the heavenly places. How did he do all of that? You you can see the redundancy. Paul's trying to build something here. He did it all in Christ. Paul does everything he can to drive uh, us to understand that the power and decision of salvation is something placed in the hands of God. God did this through Jesus by grace. His decision, his power, his kindness lavished upon dead souls. And through this, regeneration happens. He makes them alive. Regeneration can sound like a weird doctrine, but it's a beautiful one. It'll really mess things up if we don't grab a hold of it. This wording that we see in this text for made us alive is supposed to remind us of Lazarus. If you remember in the Gospels, we hear that Jesus had a close friend named Lazarus. Jesus was out doing uh, a mission and spreading the Gospel and teaching people about him. And while he was out, his friend Lazarus died. So he comes back into the town after his friend had already died. The guy is, is in a tomb. They're like, he stinks. Don't go in there. And Jesus calls out to his friend who is dead and says, Lazarus, get up from the dead and walk. Get up and come on out of there. Just as Lazarus got out of the grave when Jesus called, this is what happens to sinners when Jesus calls them in their life. You come to life. You were once dead. But regeneration, you are woken up, you are given life spiritually, you come out, walk out of the grave, and rejoice the one who did something amazing in you. Now, we, um, we can understand Christianity really is nothing less than dead people coming to life. And that's really, really important because Christianity is not the project for you to become a nicer person in it. Christianity is not a process of adopting religious routines. Christianity isn't just the thing that you do when you have kids and you want to give them some sort of moral structure. Christianity is first and foremost uh, a new person being born in Christ Jesus. That's what it is. We, We see this taught by Jesus himself. There's a guy named Nicodemus who comes to talk to Jesus. Nicodemus was a religious man, uh, and he comes, and he's having a conversation with Jesus about salvation and about what they would call eternal life and how that comes about. And Jesus turns to him and says, I assure you, this is strong language. This isn't Jesus saying like, hey, one way, I assure you that unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to have new life. You have to be born again, which is to say, knowing stuff, obeying stuff, being nice, following a religious routine, voting a certain way will never buy a person out of their grave spiritually. Only God does that. 
God does that by Jesus through grace. We can't make it happen. Friends, the the experience of being born again this way or unexpectedly given new life, it's something that isn't foreign to us here at Redemption's Hill. There are some of you here that grew up in church all of your life. Right? You, you, you baptized as a child in all the time, parents, religious, and one day something happened. You came here, you heard the gospel preach, and something happened. Something in your heart broke, and with tears in your eyes, walked up and said, I don't know what just happened to me. Something happened. God brought you to life, yeah. That's what the gospel does. God grabbed a hold of you and made you alive. It's happened to many of us. Does everyone have a story just like that? No, but some of us do. In that, we can see this. God is not in the business of just saving addicts. He also saves church kids. Thank God. And neither of those scenarios is less amazing than the other. Why? Both of them were spiritually dead. They both start with the same uh, spot spiritually. They both needed a miracle because they're dead in their sin at one point. So we rejoice in both. Someone came to life. Amen. They got other baggage that came along with it. That's cool. But someone came to life. That's a great story. Then when Paul says we've been raised up with Christ, he's pointing at the resurrection saying uh, that we have been, the language here is actually synced. We've been synced with Christ just like he has been made alive again by God. So uh, have we, we've had the same death to life experience. Jesus died on the cross and then he was raised again. What is the New Testament model for baptism? It's a declaration of me too. That's what happened to me. I was once spiritually dead, and now God has made me alive. He died and and was brought to life again, and my old spiritual self was killed at the cross, and he made me alive. That old sinful body of death is gone. The third phrase that we hear as we've been seated in the heavenly places with Christ is also to say, just like Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, Right? He has defeated sin, and he has defeated evil. The enemy may not know it yet, but it has been dealt a deathly blow. The same power that did that resides with us. What he's trying to say here, okay, Jesus stands above the enemy. It gave him a mighty blow. We see this in, in, in Genesis, even talking about it and forecasting it. But the enemy will never hurt him or do anything uh, to, 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 to cause him death again. That same thing happens to us. He's saying he seated you up in the heavens. You died uh, and came to life spiritually. The sin that is around you will never cause you to die spiritually again. It's a proclamation. Yeah, physically you'll die someday. Spiritually, you'll never taste death again. Uh, You have been made alive. You've been seated up high. The power of Christ is with you. Now, now why is that a promise? Is it because we're going to be such good, theologically precise Christians that it just can't touch us? No, it's because your Savior is much, much stronger than the enemy, and he'll never let you go. You will never, ever have the enemy or his powers let you taste death spiritually again. This is why the end of verse 7 says that there's this immeasurable grace that he's praying that we would understand. God will dispense grace forever to us in Christ. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. In your desperation, in your need, in your shortcomings, there's still more grace for you. Praise God for that. That's what Paul wants us to understand through here. Now this, the last verses, we're winding down to the tail end. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10. Four. Think, why? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul moves even further into explaining these things in these last verses, saying, uh, by grace you have been saved through faith, which it may make you think this, and it is, is a quandary for us to think about. Okay, wait a minute. We've been given the gift of grace through faith, but isn't faith a work? Another really good question. Well, Paul clarifies and says, no, it's not. Why? Because it's all a gift. Salvation isn't your own doing. Even the faith to believe is a gift, not a result of works. It's not about anything you've done or you've saying, oh God, I won't ever do that again. It is about a gift of God applied to you, not even by you, that saves you. The next natural question might be, why in the world would he do that? He says, well, he does it that way so no one can boast. Anybody ever struggle with pride? No, none of you. He doesn't say you can't. We boast in Christ and Christ crucified. Right? Any ability to preach, any ability to serve, any ability to play music, any ability to administratively do anything, good for you. Jesus still saved you, not you. This, this is what it's saying here. Same thing for me, same thing for you. So no one can boast. We get to boast in the power of Jesus, we all come to the foot of the cross the exact same way, empty-handed. Nobody brings payment. Nobody brings uh, goods or services. We all, with pockets turned out, come with the weight of our sin. We come dead, and God even supplies the faith for us to believe in this. Why would we need that? Because spiritually, we can't make the decision without it. Which means, as Paul states in verse 10, this makes those who are saved a masterpiece. It's meant to make you think of like the most beautiful art thing you could ever see, and you think of this time and this thought and this labor and this effort. Paul's going, you're that. We're meant to look at each other and not be like, that guy's so awesome, but we're meant to look and go, look what God created. I knew that dude before. Trophies of grace. He envisioned it. He worked for it. He made it happen. But look with me for the structure in the last verses. It's super important to get these last parts right. We can get lost in grace to think nothing matters, no intentionality needed, and he, he takes that away here. When he says for, it's kind of like therefore wording, because you were dead and without hope, right? Because that was true at one point. And God, while we were dead, made a plan and made us alive in Christ. And he raised us up like Christ. And he will never let us go. Because all of that is a gift from God. We are meant to see God created and brought us into salvation to be redeemed. But here's the other thing Paul is asserting heavily. You're created for good works. Before you ever knew you had a need... God was going to save you, grab you, and he, and he had these forecasted beautiful things that you were going to do. This is crucial to grasp a hold of. Paul makes sure that there's no way to mess this logic up. We aren't saved by our works. 
We aren't saved by our smarts or anything we bring to the table. But we were saved for good works. Why? So that you would walk in them later. Right? You remember order of operations in math? What comes first? Right? And if you don't do the first thing that's supposed to come first, right, then, then you mess the whole equation up. It's kind of the same thing. What comes first? Salvation or works? I'll give you a shot. It's salvation. But it is followed by works. Notice the language. It's not it can be followed by works. It might be followed by works. Well, let's shame them. It should be followed by works. Paul is showing us that God gets all the glory all the time in a believer's life. We are saved not by our own works, but by God's, which makes us a masterpiece and a trophy of grace. And as this trophy, we get to display God's grace to the world around us, which is a form of us then entering into the world around us to shine the light of God and do good works. Again, this isn't metaphorical. This is actual. My father saved me, and then he unleashed me. That's how believers should see their posture. You, know, you could say it this way. There is not a certain brand of Christian who does good works. Right? You know, oh, it's the varsity Christians who do the good things. No, that's not in here, actually. Uh, all Christians are saved to do works so they can show off their father to a world who's spiritually dead still. Why? In the hopes that after the gospel would be shared and more faith would come. And then he'd wake others up. We have to get it. We were not saved to personally save us out of hell. That is not the only reason salvation came to you. You're saved to be a masterpiece of God's who then goes out and shows the beauty of Christ to others. I hope this kind of shatters any residual belief that God is just this angry buzzkill in life. God never aimed to take your best life away from you by withholding fun from you. God is the one who gave you life, calls you into a grander story than you could have ever created. He's the one who plans, works, calls, and gifts life to sinners. All to unite them back to him and show them and show off his work afterwards. A little forecasting the next united as we're united to each other. We'll deal with that one next week. Friends, as we close today, I hope that our eyes are open to the beauty that is the miracle of salvation. What an amazing gift. If you land anywhere else, I hope that you just understand our state without God is really, really bad. But we're given an amazing gift in belief in Christ. For those of you who are saved here, I hope that you would come to the communion table as we take today. And just see again with fresh eyes the miracle of salvation. It's not a small deal. It's a really big deal. I hope that you're strengthened at the table to see what God has done for you, how much he loved you, how much he cared for you, how much he planned before you even knew that you needed anything, what great love and mercy there is here. If you're here and haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior up to this point, but maybe feel like this draw, may I just invite you to see that maybe that inner draw is God trying to gift you faith now. I would just say to you, I'd love to talk with you or pray with you afterwards. And if God is calling you, it's because he loves you and wants to redeem you. I pray that you would just lean into that. We all start from the same spot. 
needing to receive grace. And I pray that some of you would receive that. I hope today would be the day that some of you receive it, maybe even for the first time that you could come to the table and take and know God has done this for me as well. And he has brought me life and that you could celebrate with us about that. Here's the other hope. I hope that this text takes away the frustration. We get things twisted all the time. I think it is part of the enemy's continual work. It happens to all of us. Believing God requires us not to do things to get saved, but once we're saved, we get to do good works. I pray that we would see that. That order is really difficult for us. We can feel down. We can feel difficult. We can feel hardship around us. And be like, well, it's because I'm not doing enough good things, and God just doesn't love me right now. Not in the Bible. I pray that we would see that we'd find grace and hope and peace there, but then we would see that good things are, or good works are something that we get to walk into now. God unleashes his people into a world that needs his grace so that the light of the gospel may shine amongst them. Saved to do good, not by your good. There's a lot of hope found in that. Man, you guys can come back up. We will take communion today like we do each day. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Because if we don't say it clearly enough, this was Jesus' command. He was giving this to the disciples and telling us as the church, keep doing this. Why? So that you can remember. Why? Because you're probably going to forget without it. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming it to your own heart. You're proclaiming it to the body around you that I was dead and I'm not anymore. Praise God that he has done that and you receive strength and hope in that. Look what God has done. I pray that you'd find sustenance there, that you'd find strength there. That you'd find the compassion and mercy of God there. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you help us with this text. Fear, we need you. I hope that you straighten out anything that I've said. The aim is not to theologically form camps or castles. It's more the hope of just being in awe of how much you've done. and cover our eyes to the beauty of how much you've done for us, how much you care for us, God. Lord, give us all of you. May we be blown away by the reality of how much you care. I pray that you comfort us. Some of us walk in here feeling not whole, knowing things that we've done over the last week, not even knowing how to navigate you, I pray that we would see that you died for us while we were sinners, that you would invite us out of what we're in, but you still love us even when we fall short, God. Holy Spirit, give grace and mercy where needed. I pray you also where needed, convict us and draw us to you. Spirit, we just plead this morning, and thank you for letting us be a church and not closing us down, but Father, save. We have declared your word. We have declared your truth. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your part, that you would come and that you would save and you would redeem and that we would see people come to know you. 
Father, would your hand grab a hold of us and draw us near? I pray that we would be reminded of where we've came from and how much you have brought us out of and how beautiful that is. Be glorified. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace upon grace. Build us up, God, and send us out. We pray that in your name. Amen.